few minutes, we'll be in uh, the book of Nehemiah chapter 13, if you'd like to go ahead and find your way there. Today we have our final message from the book of Nehemiah. And I don't, I don't know about you, but personally, um, I have really enjoyed going through this book. And my prayer is that as we've, we've gone through the book of Nehemiah, um, that uh, some things have been beneficial to you in your walk with the Lord, and uh, especially beneficial to our church body as a whole as we, as we look at the next phases um, uh, of our church revitalization process. That's one of the reasons why I chose the book of Nehemiah and the, the building of the wall, because I, I really feel like it speaks to uh, the church today. Some of the closing paragraphs of Nehemiah chapter 13 provide for us this, this uh, fascinating commentary on the pivotal role of being a gifted leader. Now, the portrait of leadership qualities we have here in chapter 13 um, is even more compelling because it's presented within the context that demonstrates for us the harsh consequences of disappointing leadership. The high priest, Eliashib, was responsible for the people's spiritual welfare, but he did not supervise with any care the life and work of the temple. And he allowed a previously outspoken Ammonite to take up residence in the rooms allocated for spiritual purposes. And in so doing, not only did he defile God's house, but he marginalized God's servants, the Levites, who then became um, somebody that nobody listened to. Eliashib appears to have ignored the emerging inroad of secularism when it was right in front of his face with the temple's uh, within the temple's serving personnel, it is possible that he was so preoccupied with other things, he just turned a blind eye. The spiritual life of God's people was impaired, their witness was marred, and the priesthood was discredited. And there was also gross disloyalty in the life of the high priest's grandson that resulted in a defamation of God's name. Tobiah had earlier been admitted to the temple, and now another enemy, Sanballat, had through marriage become a part of the high priest's family. The two men who had most vigorously opposed the rebuilding of the walls had secured for themselves influential positions within the life of the people. They achieved this by manipulating two unspiritual priests. And here's a question. How would the average person in Israel take Scripture seriously when it had been so blatantly dismissed by the men that were responsible for its exposition? The priests Eliashib and the high priest of the same name both deserved admonition that Malachi expressed in Malachi chapter 2. There were another two of the many priests that were condemned by the prophet. They did not listen to God. They were not setting their hearts to honor the name of God. And the priests were meant to turn their people from sin. But instead, these priests were sinful in their character and had turned from following God. The disobedience of these two priests did an immense amount of harm to the people of God. 
The story gives a stark warning for Christians. This is a biblical passage with an evident corrective purpose in the passage. Sin and the life of a leader is incredibly destructive. And it dishonors God and it discredits the offender and it brings the gospel of Jesus Christ into disrepute and damages the church. That's why sin in the life of a leader, I'm, I'm talking about sin, not preference. Sin in the life of a leader is so damaging to the body of Christ. So with that said, I would ask that if you are willing and able that you please stand out of respect for God's word this morning as we look at Nehemiah chapter 13. What I want to do with you this morning is not read the entire chapter. We're going to read verses 12 through 14. We're going to skip down and read verse 22, and then we'll skip down further and read verses 29 through 31. Nehemiah chapter 13, I'll be reading from the English Standard Version this morning, verses 12 through 14. First, it says this, Then all Judah brought the tithe of grain, wine, and oil into the storehouses, and I appointed as treasurers over the storehouses Shelemiah the priest, Zadok the scribe, Padiah of the Levites, and as their assistant Hanan the son of Zakur, son of Mataniah, for they were considered reliable, and their duty was to distribute to their brothers. Remember me, O my God, concerning this. Do not wipe out my good deeds that I have done for the house of my God and for his service. Skipping down to verse 22. Then I commanded the Levites that they should purify themselves and come and guard the gates to keep the Sabbath day holy. Remember this also in my favor, O my God, and spare me according to the greatness of your steadfast love. Then skipping down to verse 29, verses 29 through 31. Remember them, O my God, because they have discredited the priesthood and the covenant of the priesthood and the Levites. Thus I cleanse them from everything foreign And I established the duties of the priests and the Levites, each in his work. And I provided for the wood offering at appointed times and for the first fruits. Remember me, O my God, for good. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. God, I pray that as we look into your word this morning and as we look at biblical leadership, God, may you speak to our hearts and lives this morning, maybe even in this room. You're calling someone out to be that, that biblical leader. Or maybe in this room, someone has issue with biblical leadership. Oh God, that you would speak to our hearts, whatever it is that we need to hear, speak to our hearts this morning, and may we respond even as Kenny already prayed with obedience to your word. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated this morning. The first thing I want us to see when it comes to biblical patterns of leadership is this shared leadership. Shared 
leadership. When Nehemiah discovered that, that during his absence, the people had broken their promise about uh, tithing their crops for the support of the Levites, Nehemiah immediately took steps to correct the situation. It was vital for the spiritual life of God's people that the teaching and pastoral ministry of these men, the Levites, be quickly restored. Normally, the tithes would be collected by the Levites themselves, and they would always be accompanied by a priest when they were collecting the tithes. But Nehemiah realized that at this time, new arrangements must be made for paying the tithe that was due. So after the nobles were rebuked for their gross neglect in the matter, look at what Nehemiah does. He appoints four men. Four men to serve as a team that are responsible for the collection and the administration of these gifts. And so the people throughout Judah could bring their tithes of grace, new wine, the oil, to the storeroom that was recently vacated by Tobiah. And now the appointment of this team is really informative for us, especially when it comes to shared leadership. And there are four main concerns here. First concern is this, the coordination of gifts. The coordination of gifts. The team consisted of four men, a priest, a Levite, a scribe. Kind of sounds like a joke, right? Priest, Levite, scribe, walk into, but anyway. Priest, a Levite, a scribe, and a more menial assistant, Hanan, who possibly belonged to an Israelite family of temple singers. Notice the background and vocation and experience of the four men are all different. Nehemiah deliberately pointed a, appointed a team that would have a variety of gifts and so that the, the work uh, might, might benefit from the complementary skills and expertise. It seems like Nehemiah is ensuring that each of the four men stand, uh, uh, stands for what the temple represents. A disloyal priest had abused the office, right? So it was good that there's now a reliable priest, Shelemiah, who is there to perform the duties that are required by the people's covenant. A priest is to accompany the Levites when they received the people's tithes, according to uh, chapter 10, verse 38. Many of the Levites had been deprived of support. They weren't um, getting supported in any way, shape, or form. And so it is only right that as their ministry is restored, that there be a Levite, Padiah, there to acknowledge the gifts that are brought by the people. And then there's a scribe named Zadok who was necessary for recording the details of the offering. So they would bring in their offering and, and he would record the details. All three were helped by an assistant named Hanan. He could uh, help stack the grain, the wine, the oil, which was brought to the purified storeroom of the temple. The united team that Nehemiah has formed with its diversity of gifts is an essential model for Christians today. When he is writing to the first century believers in Asia Minor, Peter says, uh, or urges his readers to recognize the complementary nature of gifted ministries. The, the, church, the churches must realize that God's gifts have been individually given, but generously distributed. They, they, they needed 
uh, to be faithfully administered, knowing that any servant intent on God's glory will receive the necessary strength. So these four men were present at the storerooms to witness the priest, acknowledge the Levite, record the scribe, and handle the assistant, the gifts. Each had a job to do, and they did it as supportive partners, not as contenders with one another. Secondly, about this leadership is we notice delegating responsibility. Delegating responsibility. This is something that many leaders struggle with. This is something that I often struggle with. How do I delegate this thing to someone else? Good leaders know they must delegate responsibility. Nehemiah appointed these four men so that this work could be carried out satisfactorily and given the potential danger of corruption under a watchful eye of a team rather than an individual. So each member could then ensure that the items being brought as offering are allocated solely for the purpose for which they are being brought and were given. In financial matters in particular, it's essential for everyone concerned that, that these issues are done with careful attention to detail, but also in a manner that is thorough and responsible. There are many sad stories of corruption that can be traced all the way back to carelessness on the part of senior people who do not consider the temptations that are associated with the receipt and distribution of large sums of money. You just have to be careful. We don't, like even in our church, we don't have like one person on the counting team that goes down and counts money by themselves. That would be absolutely ridiculous to do that. But there are people that have been in positions of leadership that have fallen because they, they didn't associate, oh, all this money coming in, there's a temptation here. Nehemiah believed that there had been enough corruption and greedy preoccupations in Judah already. So it's time to begin a new chapter in the ethical and spiritual life of the people. This newly appointed team became exemplars of morally responsible service, good leaders delegate, but they don't just delegate to anyone. They, they delegate to people that are capable of doing what needs to be done. Thirdly, we see the importance of integrity. A good leader must have integrity. They don't have to appear that they have integrity. That's not what I'm saying. They must have integrity. Nehemiah's primary concern in appointing these men was not just to secure the representation of different members of the temple staff, but because all four of them were considered reliable, or uh, in other words, to be faithful, which is the exact same qualifications we find the Apostle Paul using in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 1 and 2, when he says this, This is how one should regard us, Paul speaking. This is how you should regard us as servants of Christ and as stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required that that stewards or of stewards that they be found faithful. Nehemiah had been away from Jerusalem for some time, so in selecting the right people... He perhaps looked to the advice of others, yet 
He made sure that those who formed this important team had in their different spheres proven themselves to be honest people that had integrity, integrity, that were reliable, and that could be found faithful. Character means something. And the biblical witness very frequently insists that the character is of great importance and of greater importance than ability. You know, so often uh, we look to ability, right? And not character. Character means more than ability. Remember when Samuel was looking at the sons of Jesse? And, and when he looked at the eldest son, he thought for sure this was the one that was going to be the candidate to be king. He had the stature. He had the physique. This oldest son of Jesse just looked like a king. But God's not deceived by the exterior. He's concerned with the heart. Those inner qualities that are not always apparent to the onlooker. Churches get themselves in trouble all the time because they put people in leadership not based on character, but based on ability. And they neglect character. Nehemiah had confidence in his team because he was persuaded of their moral incorruptibility. This is why Paul maintained that the only people of similar caliber, those who are found faithful, should be entrusted with the responsibility of leadership. If that person cannot be found faithful, then they should not be a leader. Fourthly, we see the primacy of love. The primacy of love. Nehemiah had a great sense of community. He believed that however well his scheme was organized, its purposes would not achieve its potential unless the team concluded that givers, administrators, and recipients were united in a common bond of love for God and for each other. Have you ever heard these words? I guarantee you most of you have heard these words. I love you, but, right? You've heard that. I love you. But, and you know something bad's about to come. When, when you hear those words, I, brother, I love you, but you're just a jerk. Or, you know, whatever. I don't know. I, I think I've actually heard those words. But, um, I love you, but, you know something, you know something terrible is about to follow. Look at verse 13. Those whose ministry would be maintained by these offerings were their brothers. With, with the repeated use, this, this term brother's been repeated. That there's a vital theme of mutual love that emerges from the context throughout the book of Nehemiah. Nehemiah uh, regarded all of his compatriots not merely as fellow citizens and fellow Israelites, but as brothers and sisters in the same family. Oh, church, you and I, we have to understand that we are brothers and sisters. You and I are part of the same family. And that is clear to Nehemiah. 
Nehemiah chapter 1, verse 2, chapter 4, verse 14, chapter 4, verse 23, chapter 5, verse 1, chapter 5, verse 8, chapter 5, verse 10, uh, chapter 5, verse 14, chapter 10, verse 29. The brothers and their partners must be loved, served, taught, encouraged, and protected in one way or another. All of these are developed in Nehemiah's memoirs. You don't mess with family. That's the point. We're brothers and sisters in Christ. And the brotherhood theme, it's never, never far from the New Testament. And it's practical teaching about the church. And it serves as a reminder to us that everyone who confesses their allegiance to Christ belongs to each other. That everyone who says, I am a Christian and I confess my allegiance to Christ is our brother and sister. And therefore, we should treat them like our brother and sister because they are part of the family. Point number two, competent leadership. So we've seen this idea of how Nehemiah has shared leadership Now let's see competent leadership. In the final brief paragraph of this book, Nehemiah gives an explanation. He tells us that after the expulsion of the offending grandson of Eliashib, he purified the priests and the Levites of everything that was foreign, and he assigned to them the duties to to each their own task. Nehemiah also made provision for the contributions of wood at designated times. This work naturally involved women as well as men in uh, in every locality throughout Judah. The first fruits were to be offered by all of the Israelite people. We are once again introduced to another team. This is a larger team than the one that was appointed to collect the tithes. Nehemiah describes the ongoing work of Israel's priests, Levites, and others, and at the same time portrays five characteristics of their continuing service. With encouragement from Nehemiah, they face the future with a desire to work loyally, purified everyone of everything that was foreign, work responsibly. They were assigned duties, work interdependently. Each had their own task, work persistently. Contributions of, of wood were brought throughout the year and work wholeheartedly which was typified in the offering of their first fruits the very best was given to God the conclusion of the book in verses 31 and 32 points to ongoing work and essential partnership of designated leaders and ordinary men and women in Israel it's a brief description that intentionally recalls the terms of the covenant to which the leaders and the people had put their seals. The reference to purity, the itemized responsibility of the priests and Levites, the contributions of wood at designated times, and the offerings of the first fruits are all an echo of earlier vows that they had made as they had promised they would not neglect the house of our God. These two ending sentences give us a miniature of devoted service. They are all an illustration of a cluster of ideals. Here and elsewhere in Scripture, modern believers are encouraged to share. What I'm, what I'm saying is this, that competent 
biblical leaders make it clear that followers of Christ are to be pure, are to be contributors to the work of spreading the gospel, including the support of God's servants. We are to bring in our first fruits. Otherwise, we are neglecting God's house and competent biblical leaders encourage us not to neglect God's house. So we have shared leadership. We have competent leadership. Lastly, I want to share with you this morning commendable leadership. Commendable leadership. What is commendable leadership? Especially when we talk about being biblical. The most outstanding personality in this chapter is actually Nehemiah. But here's the thing. If we read this chapter about Nehemiah, we would be tempted to say that that his leadership qualities are neither commendable nor biblical. I mean, when we read this chapter, he he pulls people's hair. He he gets violent with them. He throws people out of the temple. We would we would look at this and be like, that doesn't sound like a a um, commendable leader or a biblical leader. However, Nehemiah's leadership qualities have been front and center throughout the book. As we looked at the physical reconstruction of the walls and the moral and spiritual reformation of the nation in chapter 13, our attention is focused on a group of this, of this short prayers that Nehemiah prays, which at times kind of read like um, extracts from a spiritual diary, like we're, like we're uh, peering into some sort of spiritual diary of Nehemiah that's not really meant for our eyes. It is like Nehemiah is, is sharing these personal outpourings and, and we're intruding into his personal life. There are four prayer entries in verses 14, 22, 29, and 31, and they reveal to us four of Nehemiah's spiritual attitudes that we can learn from today when it comes to commendable leadership. Number one, commendable leadership, commendable leaders are devout in prayer. They're devout in prayer. These four short prayers can undoubtedly be misunderstood. And three of them, he gives this introductory phrase, which he says, remember me. Right? That sounds to us like, like we could say, well, well Nehemiah is uh, just thinking of himself. He's just a self-regarding person. But that would be to overlook Nehemiah's prayerful approach to the entirety of life. Furthermore, in verse 29, he prays, remember them. He is interceding on behalf of the priests and the Levites who have been sinful. Each of of the separate encounters described in this chapter conclude with a prayer. Nehemiah was a leader who wanted to do everything within the context of daily reliance upon God for his guaranteed resources. As Nehemiah led, he often prayed that God would speak to him, that God would speak through him, that God would use him to be the leader that he needs to be. He begins in chapter 1, verse 4, and he continues throughout the entirety of the book in passionate prayer. And his concluding sentences remind us of, of the fact that Nehemiah prayer life was a sustained priority in the life and work of this reliant servant of God. And so a commendable leader is devout in prayer. In fact, 
I would, I would say that should be a question that we ask anybody that's a leader. I, I don't so much care about their public prayer, but I do care about their private prayer. Are they a man of prayer? Are they devout in prayer? Secondly, Nehemiah cherished a deep, personal faith. And so will a commendable leader. Nehemiah was necessarily preoccupied with his people's community concern and their spiritual, moral, and social dimensions. And that did not keep him from acknowledging the importance of a personal experience of God. He treasures the nation's corporate covenant relationship. But when he enters the place of prayer, look at how he addresses the Lord. He doesn't, when he enters into the time of prayer, he doesn't pray, oh, Israel's God. He says, my God, in verse 14. He has an intimate, personal kinship with God. And it has proven a vital dimension of authentic believing experience across the centuries. Luther's exposition in Galatians chapter 2 verse 20 says, The Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. He urges the people to recognize the crucial importance of those pronouns. He says, For Christ when he comes is nothing else but joy and sweetness to a trembling and broken heart as here Paul witnesses with the most sweet and comfortable title which loved me and gave himself for me. Read therefore with great vehemency these words, me and for me And so inwardly practice with yourself that you with a sure faith might conceive and print this me in your heart, not doubting, but that you are of the number of those to whom this me belongs. Like many hundreds of devoted believers in the Old Testament, Nehemiah enjoyed an intimate personal knowledge of God. A faith with the coming of Christ was to become even more assured, coherent, and dynamic for those who believe. May that be our faith. May you and I have a deep, dynamic, and personal faith. May we not view God as God who is somewhere out there, but that God is right here with us, and that our relationship with Him is a personal one. May you and I daily commune with God, and may we submit to the will of God, and understand that Christ came and died for me. Thirdly, Nehemiah depended on grace alone. Throughout his life, Nehemiah was a man of vigorous action. Still, he also knew that even though a personal relationship with God, even though that that he had that, it had to be expressed in appropriate works. It could never be achieved by works. In verse 22, he prays that God will show him mercy according to his great love. That word for love is that great Hebrew word, hesed. It is found throughout the Old Testament. 
and it is variously translated as loving kindness, covenant love, and mercy. The term describes the compassionate nature and the dependable character of God who made a firm agreement with his people and who promises never to forsake those in whom he loves. It is an indication of God's steady and extraordinary persistence in continuing to love Israel, who was wayward despite their instant and constant waywardness. And it has already figured earlier in Nehemiah's writings of the unique love of God. Those who catch a glimpse of that reality, the costliness of the love of God, the permanence of the love of God, never imagine for a moment that they can earn God's favor by their works. Because you can't. There is nothing that you can do to earn A God who would send his only son to die for a filthy wretch like you or I. We cannot earn it. We did not deserve it. And it will never be diminished. That is a great thing about the love of God. That is the beauty of it. You cannot earn it, but you cannot diminish it either. It doesn't matter what you do. God's not up in heaven looking down at you, Christian, going, oh, oh, I don't love him as much anymore. You can't diminish the love of God. That is our God. That is the God who loves you and I. That is the God who pursues and comes after us. When we are running from Him, just like the Israelites, God follows after us and loves us and sends His Son for us. Wow! What a loving God. Lastly, about commendable leadership. Nehemiah was conscious of human accountability. These four concluding remember prayers suggest that Nehemiah treasured an eternal perspective on life. He asked that in the future the Lord will forget none of the many acts of loyal love. Again, the word hesed which had characterized his ministry. Nor that the Lord would forget the disloyalty of those who defiled Israel's distinctive witness. His opponent's priorities were determined by social advancement, materialistic gain. But not Nehemiah. Nehemiah worked for God's approval. Blenkinsop observes this, that to look for assurance that one's life and work are of some worth in the sight of God is hardly an attitude to be despised. Nehemiah anticipates the day portrayed by Daniel and Malachi when heaven's record record of earth's deeds will be publicly revealed. He anticipates that. And I don't know about you, Christian. But when I stand before God, I want my life to count. I certainly do not want to stand before my God 
having done nothing to advance his kingdom, keeping my Christianity as a secret, fearful of what man might say, and not fearful of what Almighty God might do. Kidner writes the closing prayer that he might be remembered with favor was abundantly answered. For along with Ezra, he bequeathed to God's people a virility and clarity of faith which has never departed from them. In addition to his administrative skills, enthusiastic reform measures, doctrinal integrity, and exemplary lifestyle, Nehemiah has enriched generations of believers by these attractive but perpetually relevant writers. Along with every other Old Testament author, he wrote as he would carry, be carried along by the Holy Spirit. Through Nehemiah's unforgettable book, that same spirit who inspired the writings of Nehemiah encourages and empowers believers today to be obedient in everything that God is saying to you. Are you obedient, Christian? When you stand before God on that day, What have you done to advance his kingdom? What have you done? Because you know what? When you stand before God and be like, well, you know, Lord, I I said that prayer that one time in vacation Bible school, and then I went to church every Sunday, and that's it. Or you might say, well, well, Lord, I, I said that prayer and I went to church and I read my Bible every single day and I prayed every single day. Do we really think that's the point of Christianity? Is that what Jesus told his disciples to do? I've said it from the pulpit and I will say it until the day I die or I don't get to preach anymore. But if you think you can call yourself a Christian and never share the gospel ever, you're deceiving yourself. We don't find that Christianity in the Bible. Nowhere. In conclusion, I love what Edwin Yamuchi in the Expositors, I tried to say his name right. I just know it comes from the Expositors Bible Commentary. says this, Nehemiah provides us with one of the most vivid patterns of leadership in Scripture. He was a man of responsibility as shown by his position as a royal cupbearer. He was a man of vision, confident of who God was and what he could do through his servants. He was not, however, a visionary, but a man that planned and then acted. He was a man of prayer who prayed spontaneously and constantly, even in the presence of the king. He was a man of action and cooperation who realized what had to be done, explained it to others, then enlisted their aid. Nehemiah, a layman 
was able to cooperate with his contemporary Ezra, the scribe and priest, in spite of the fact that these two leaders were of entirely different temperaments. He was a man of compassion who was moved by the plight of the poor members of his society so that he renounced even the rights that he was entitled to in chapter 5, verse 18, and then denounced the greed of the wealthy in chapter 5, verse 8. He was a man who triumphed over opposition. His opponents tried to ridicule him, attempted to slander him, and spread misleading messages. But through it all, God's favor was on Nehemiah, and he triumphed over all difficulties. In this final chapter of Nehemiah, we have a demonstration of the fickleness of the people of God. And despite the location of Ezra and Nehemiah in, in our canon, in our scripture, this scripture, the last chapter of Nehemiah, is the last record of history until John the Baptist comes on the scene. This is it. The ending sets up the need of a true Israelite whose word is never broken. The ending sets up a, a time when, when that person will come. Israelites in Nehemiah's day were all too capable of making covenants only to break the covenant. Jesus Christ, by contract, contrast, was obedient right up to the point of death. The one who sits on the throne is called faithful and true. We are prone to wander and stray away from God, but Jesus, He is a rock. And there will come a day when God's people will no longer be summoned to repent. And there will come a day when God's people will no longer need correction. But between now and then, the only way that we're going to be able to love each other, the only way that we will be able to get along in harmonious, healthy, happy relationships is for us to confront sin and respond in humility and repent when we're confronted. That's the only way to have good relationships. And until that day, that blessed day, that hope for day when we are made like the one for whom we long. We will live on this earth with one another. May we love one another. May we confess and confront sin. May we truly repent individually and corporately. I don't know how God's word may have spoken to you this morning. Maybe it spoke to you about leadership. Maybe you're sitting out there going, you know what? It's time for me to step up. Maybe this morning you're sitting there going, hmm, I didn't have any idea that this is what leadership was about. I need to pray more for my leaders. I don't, I don't know how God has spoken to you. I pray that however he's spoken to you, that you'd be willing to respond this morning. In a minute, we're going to sing a song. I'm just going to encourage you that if, if you need prayer or you need to come and, and, and 
say uh, anything to me or you need to pray about something or you just need to come to the altar and pray or if you need uh, uh, to join the church or anything that you feel like, like the Lord has spoken to you, I want to give you that opportunity. Let's go ahead and close with prayer.